out of town and uh, you call about a computer problem and you might end up on a line overseas to somebody in India and I, I kept telling a guy one time, I said, I do not understand. I'm enunciating for him as if that's going to help. I do not understand what you're saying. Okay, so I have to talk a little bit faster or a little easier or something like that. So, okay, well, I can't, I can't understand a word you're saying. I finally said, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to have somebody else. I can't understand one word you're saying. And I'm speaking English over here, okay? Uh, that's a problem. You end up getting somebody who doesn't, can't, you can't understand, so that's not helpful. You need somebody that knows uh, how to tell you what they, they want you to do. Some help is really helpful uh, when you get your hands on the right uh, uh, person to service whatever it is that you're having, having trouble about, and they come right to your door, and they know how to handle the issue, and they fix it right away. Like maybe if you had a broken dishwasher or something, and somebody shows up and they know exactly what to do, that's always good. In other cases, it's good to know that somebody has your back in a certain situation. Uh, I don't do this kind of stuff anymore, but when I was in college, I worked at that motorcycle shop. And uh, uh, how many of you ever worked in a motorcycle shop? Uh, can you imagine that it's a little rough at a motorcycle place where they sell more? In the back where they do mechanic work, those guys are a little rough. Uh, most of them, you know, like to smoke the funny cigarette and stuff like that and, uh, uh, you know, on lunch break and stuff like that. And so, you know, it's quite a crew. Well, one day I walk out into the shop, that's where I worked, and there was only one guy there. It was kind of right after lunch, or we're supposed to get back for lunch. And he's at the back of the shop, and there's two guys that have surrounded him, and they're saying words that we can't say in church, and they're mad at him, and it looks like they're going to, as we would say, clean his clock here in just a few minutes for something that he did, and he probably deserved it. I'm going to call him Kevin. Kevin was always doing something he shouldn't do with people he shouldn't do it with, and I thought, oh boy, but I said, you know, it's two against one. I can't have that. So I just stuck my head out and I went, Kevin, do you need some help with this? And these guys looked up there at me, and uh, <laughs> I hope I look bigger than I was. Maybe God made it look that way. Uh, but uh, they just kind of backed off and settled down. And he goes, no, I got this, Greg, I got this. Okay, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure you do, you know. So I just kind of hang, hang out a little bit where they can see me until everything was over and they left. Uh, later on, he came up and he said, hey, thanks for sticking your nose in back there. And I said, well, you're welcome. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm glad it worked out that way because um, I was bluffing on my part. Anyway, uh, the believer has the greatest help available to mankind. There is no one. Uh, that we would rather have show up than Jesus. There's no one that we'd rather have show up than God because there's no one greater than him. He is sovereign over all things, and that's who we need to show up. Uh, it is the best help that a person can have in any situation. Now, one of the greatest examples of that, if you want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, how, how far will God go to protect his servants? Well, the Old Testament is full of many examples of that, and I just want to read one about Elisha the Tishbite. Elisha was always telling kings like Ahaziah exactly what God thought, and they didn't like it. And so the, uh, the king's men came and said, this prophet said this about you, and he said, well, who was that prophet? And they answer him in verse 8. And they answered him, they said, he was a hairy man, with a leather girdle about his loins, and he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Tishbite just means he's from the, the town of Tish, all right? So he's Elisha the Tishbite. And so uh, the king is sent to him, uh, to Elijah, that is. Oh, I'm sorry, to Elijah. And I'm saying Elisha. It's Elijah. 
uh, the king sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So he sends a military uh, group out uh, to take Elijah. And when he went up to him, that is the captain and his men, behold, Elijah was sitting on top of a hill, and he said to him, O man of God, so he does recognize he's talking to a prophet, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah didn't even move, and he replied to the captain of 50, if I am a man of God, and you know, that's what the captain said, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. <laughs> so, all right, you, you want to mess with Elijah? No, uh, you would think they'd learn. Well, they didn't. So he again sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50, and he came and he said, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to him, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire, the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Most people think that, that fire comes in the form of a tremendous lightning strike that would just uh, kill everybody. So he again sent a captain of 30 with his 50, a captain... I'm sorry, a captain of a, th of a third 50, the third group, with his 50. And when the third captain of the 50 went up, he came and he bowed down on his knee before Elijah, and he begged him and said, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 and their 50s. Now let my life be precious in your sight. And the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, Go down with him. So the way he approached him just changed everything, right? So he arose and he went down uh, with him to the king. And then he said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal Zebub, and that would be, a, uh, one, there's different forms of that. This is uh, also uh, a reference to Satan, the god of Ekron. It is, be, is it because there is no god in Israel that you inquire his word? Therefore you shall not come down from your bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Ahaziah died according to the word of Yahweh, which Elijah had spoken. And because he had no son, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And the answer is yes, they are. God is very powerful. There was a couple of uh, Jesus' disciples, and one time there was a little confrontation about something, and they stepped up and they said, Lord, shall we call fire from heaven down and take care of them? And, and Jesus says, well, what, what am I doing with you, you know, basically? Uh, and so he started calling them the sons of thunder because they were always wanting to bring fire down and kill somebody that was in opposition. Now, that didn't happen that day, uh, but uh, God is very powerful. He can do those things. You think about that? You might think you're in danger. Well, what if God just decided to bring lightning out of heaven and strike down your enemy? Or what if you're standing there and afraid and God just decides to open up the earth and swallow your enemies? Has he ever done that before? Sure he has, more than once. God can do anything. God can take care of anything. And we need to be mindful of that, that God's in control of the situation. All right, well, let's read it, 153 to 154 in Psalm 119, calling upon God, of course, look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. 
Great are your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Yahweh, according to your loving kindness. For the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. One more time, he's talking about the various sections, the various kinds of, of the words that God gives us. So he talked about the law, the word, the statutes, the ordinances, the testimonies, the word again, the precepts of God, and one more time, the word, and then the ordinances. So all these things work together. They're all a little bit different, but they all work together to give life to us. Well, let's look at it. Verses 153 to 154, where we are going to learn the faithful can call on God when afflicted to plead their case and to give them back their life. All right? So uh, what we see is we have God. We have a man who is being afflicted by other people. And this man loves the word of God. It's in the word of God he found out who God is and what God can do. And so he's trusting that. And he's praying against the, uh, the other people that are afflicting him. And that's been our pattern all the way through the psalm. The psalmist is in trouble. Again, he doesn't tell us what it is. It seems to be serious, perhaps life-threatening, whatever it is, but we are also not told exactly what it is so that you can apply this truth to all the problems that you have because God wants you to know it doesn't matter the problem because I'm the same God and I do, I do the same kind of work. Uh, we are used to the progression then that we've seen in Psalm 119. Somebody is afflicted, they call out for help, uh, they confess their loyalty to God and his word, and then they ask him to deliver uh, them uh, from whatever the trouble is, and then they praise him for the rescue. And that's our pattern. He asks God to notice the affliction he is under. For God to notice means that he will take care of it by taking action on behalf of the petitioner. So look upon my affliction. In other words, notice what I am, I am doing and do not forget, I do not forget your law. If I forgot the law, it means I uh, don't do what it says. If I remember the law, it means I do what the law says. I'm remembering it by doing. If I forget, I'm not doing it. So he's calling upon God who never forgets what he said or what he is like to look upon his affliction. He seeks a rescue from God from the situation. And this is a word that means to draw something out from something or to take something uh, or deliver something. He's asking God, would you please reach down in my affliction, whatever it is, and drag me out of that or rescue me out of that, draw me out of my affliction. Lord, remove me from this, and that's what a rescue is. If you happen to be uh, drowning in a lake and somebody pulls you out, they've, they've rescued you, they drew you out. Here he mentions that if God rescues him, he will then be free to live a life of keeping God's statutes. The psalmist has said this all the way through. Lord, I want to be free from affliction. I want to be free from conflict. I want to be free from the enemy so that I won't have any hindrances in keeping your word. He wants to, to be able to live freely for God without the interference of the unbelievers. So when we are afflicted by the unbeliever, and uh, we are not able to then be busy living the way we want our life as a faithful follower of God because we have to deal with them. We have to deal with their opposition. And uh, we, we are not blind. Uh, we can see that our world is turning against Christianity every single day more and more and more. 
We expect this. That's what the Bible said when the end comes. Then our enemies are going to increase, and they're going to get a little bit more nasty, and we're going to learn what it is to uh, rely on the Word of God and God's promises. And as they do that, they're going to try to take away our freedoms. No more church assembly. No more giving to a church, you know, no, no more church at all. If you want to have church, you have to do it the state's way. And that's what we've seen in countries all around the world. It's hard to do what we need to do if we have that opposition. And uh, there is a freedom that is lost because of the unbeliever and because they're opposing our lifestyle in Christ, making it difficult for us. By not forgetting the law of God, he is saying, God, even though I need rescuing and even though I'm in affliction, I am not going to do anything except be loyal to the covenant, which means he obeys God. In verse 154, he calls on God to plead his cause and prays that the result will be his redemption. Now, these are legal terms in this verse, calling on God to be the judge in the case who will plead for the righteous person as opposed to the wicked. Uh, I want you to know that there, there are no lawyers uh, that work in heaven. I didn't say there's no lawyers in heaven, did I? <laughs> I said there's no lawyers that have a job as a lawyer in heaven. God is the judge and God is the jury. Uh, if anybody's case needs to be pled, God does it. If anybody's case needs to be witnessed against, God does that. And uh, he will use people for witnesses in those things, but uh, no lawyers there. God is perfect in all of his judgments. Uh, you could have no better person than Jesus to plead your case. Let's look at a couple of places. First Samuel 24, 15. First Samuel 24, 15. These are examples of people looking to God for their help. 1 Samuel 24, 15 says this, O Yahweh, therefore, be judge and decide between you and me. All right, so he's talking about uh, uh, the, the two people here talking about the, the dispute that they had. And decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. One of the things you can have in mind if somebody's attacking you and you feel like you're under judgment is to uh, remember that it's easy to say, may the Lord judge between me and you and leave it in the hands of God. Uh, I've had to say that many times, may the Lord judge between me and you, and then uh, we leave it to him. All right, let's go to uh, Micah 7.9. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. little books are kind of hard to find sometimes. Like I'm having trouble right now. There we go. Okay, and that is, that is Micah 7, 9. I will bear the indignation of Yahweh because I have sinned against him until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light, and I will see his righteousness. And then he goes on to talk about then, then the enemies will see my Lord and what he, what he can do. God is the one, thank goodness, God is the one who's going to be our judge and, and not people in the end. And we can also understand that the judge of all the earth will do what's right. When Abraham was pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah and his, and his nephew Lot, he said, Lord, if there's 50 righteous, will you not destroy it? And God says, yes. Well, he works his way down until he's, he's just ashamed to even ask anymore. Uh, but he, he also says to God, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, that's rhetorical. It means yes. Uh, the judge of all the earth will do what's right. No matter what, God always does what's right. God never does what's wrong. 
and we can count on that. As God has promised his people, uh, he will revive them. And revive, in the Hebrew text here, means to return one to life. Sometimes in affliction we feel like, you know, we, we could almost die here. Uh, he wants the, his life of service to be, re, to be returned to him. Verse 155. Because they do not seek God's statutes, salvation is a long distance away from the unbeliever. Here we see the great spiritual divide that exists between the believer and the unbeliever. Uh, the unbeliever is not close to salvation. Uh, he is not close because he refuses to look at God's statutes. It is the word of God that reveals to us the power of God to save. Remember what it says in Romans 6, 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For, the reason is, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God unto salvation. The word of God is the power of God unto salvation. Now that's true in our salvation of our souls and it's true in salvation from uh, trouble. Those who refuse the word of God will not be saved. Unbelievers today in general don't believe this. They firmly believe that there are many paths to God and they make up their own gods too. And they all lead to some paradise for everybody in the end. The Bible doesn't say that. That isn't true. Can you imagine uh, if that was true, that to heaven, what it would be like if we're just transferred from our sick human experience into another place where we're still sick humans and what heaven would be like after we died? It'd be horrible. Nobody would want to go there. No, heaven is a place of the transformed and the holy. What transformed them? The Bible, the word of God, God's work in us. God will not automatically transform those who reject his love here when they stand before him for judgment over there. After this life is over, there's no second chance. Verse 156, we ask for God to revive us according to his tender mercies. Tender mercies refers to the protection that God has for those who are in a situation of helplessness and dependent, which, by the way, is us every minute of every day. The truth of the matter is that without God, we're powerless to fight any battle. But with God, all things are possible. The faithful can count on the tender mercies of God sustaining them. Uh, they are many. Again, his prayer is that God would return him to life because the enemy has just kind of taken it out of him, where he can walk each day and talk with the Lord and keep the ordinances of God. We must stop and compare ourselves here for a moment with what the psalmist is saying about his relationship with God. That's what the Bible invites us to do all the time. God, he brings forth certain saints of, of the past, and he picks out certain things in their lives, and he says, be like that. Be like that. So I need to ask, uh, why, why do I want to live life? What's my goal? What is it I really want? What is it that I want to do? What, what, what is it that uh, is, is my privilege to do, and I love to do it? What do I spend my time engaged in? If you look at my life in a week, where, where am I at? What am I doing? Uh, what, what does it show about what my desire is? Has our answer been this, so that I can spend every minute praising Jesus and obeying him? That's what this author's uh, prayer is and what his life is. It is merciful that God allows us to live under his direction and care each day. This is a love letter. This is a letter of life. This keeps you alive in a world where Satan is covering uh, the, the world with darkness and his lies and, and uh, his satanic minions are trying to ruin lives. 
in verses 157 to 158, we do not let persecution derail our obedience to God, and we are disturbed by those who champion ignoring God. In other words, the unrighteous upset us by the way that they live. I have some news for you. We upset the unrighteous by the way we live, and that's what God called us to do. There's pressure in this life to turn from following God. That's what 157 is about and walk the path of the unregenerate. Many are the persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. They're obviously trying to get him to turn away from his testimonies. Uh, young kids in junior high and high school and colleges, they run into kids that are trying to get them to do wrong things with them all the time, get them off the path of following Jesus Christ. And some of our friends as adults would do the same thing. This is considered persecution in a path of the adversary, and we know who that is. Uh, Satan's one of his names is the adversary. As his children, uh, have, we have made up our minds that we are going to, no matter what uh, they throw at us, not abandon or turn away from the testimonies of God. Uh, we are his children to the end. Come what may, that's our commitment. In 158, the psalmist expresses his loathing for the people who do not care about or do they keep the ways of God. And they never will be what God wants them to be if they don't submit to the power of the word of God. One descriptor of the person without God is that they are treacherous. They are deceitful. When one's guide is one's own conscience, which is what all, all that the unbeliever has to go by, evil seeps in through the, uh, to, to the core of the unregenerate and the lifeless soul. Along with the psalmist, people who don't obey God's word are, are disturbed and uh, disgusted by us. We have so little in common with the people who do not love God. In the way we live, the way we think, the way we act, what we say. And it's no wonder they don't like God and his word. Verse 159 and then 160. The faithful ask for God's reviving because they love him. And they know that all of his words are everlasting truth. You remember our Lord in Matthew 4 and Luke 4? And the enemy of, the enemy of righteousness, uh, the, the king of the dark kingdom, came and tempted him. And what Jesus did, even though Satan was perverting the word of God, Jesus came back with the right understanding of the word of God in every case. And really, by his faith, and he defeated Satan with the word of God. That's what we do. And, and we do it when we live each day. The faithless, per faithless person is one who has no covenant loyalty to God as uh, seen in their disregard for his word. All right, Can you claim to be a Christian and disregard God's word? I don't think so. Uh, people that say they came to know Christ, but they never get involved in his word. They never do what it says. They don't obey it. Uh, there's a real disconnect there that is a spiritual reality that probably shows what they really are in most cases. The faithful are those who dearly love God's precepts, his ordinances, his commandments, and they rely on him for the life that it gives through the word, which is full of God's loving kindness. We should ask ourselves here, because the psalmist mentions it, do I really love the word of God? Do I love it enough that I will defer to the word of God when I want to do something else? Do I allow it to mold me? You can't do what you need to do that preform back here without a lot of heat and a lot of pressure from air blowing it into the form to make it what it's supposed to be. God uses heat in our life to get us to do the right thing. 
God has a mold that he wants us to be in, and it's not a mold we can make up. It has to be his mold. And there's going to be some heat, and there's going to be some pressure to get where God wants us to go because we come out of a, a sinful, fallen world, and we live in a sinful, fallen world. And we need to just be what God wants us to be so we can be valuable. Do I value the word of God to the highest degree? Is it my philosophy, my theology, my soteriology, my eschatology, and my rule of life, my guide for all things? Is it or is it not? Finally, in verse 160, the author relates to us that the sum of the word of God is truth. Uh, This is how a Hebrew would say it, and I quote, the chief characteristics of God, I'm sorry, the chief characteristic of God's word is truth. The chief characteristic of God's word is truth. This truth of God is everlasting. God's word cannot be changed, nor could they ever be found to be untruthful or irrelevant. People change over thousands of years, but not enough that they're ever not in need of everything that God says. God's word is vital. God's word is life-giving to every generation of, of men and women. It is never not true. It's never unprofitable for any man or woman. Let it transform you. Trust in the word of God and what he says you should be and what he says you should do so that you can become useful in the master's hands. So the psalm teaches us that the faithful covenant keeper, that's us, can call on God for revival and deliverance from those who afflict them and have no regard for the word of God. So just a few applications and we'll be done. Number one, God has buried gold in the earth, but eternal love and life in his book. Some people, they think that the most valuable things are the things that God put in the earth. They're not. They're the things that he put in the word of God. Secondly, the wicked often stand in the way of our being able to fully devote ourselves to God. Be careful who you partner with. Be careful who you run with. Because they stand in the way of our development with God if they're not righteous. Number three, Nothing, nothing the unrighteous, the unbeliever, can say or do should be able to derail us from obeying God out of our love for him. And then finally, the psalm teaches, the unbelievers disobey and ignore God's word each and every day. Their way of life disturbs us, and we'd love to see them come to a saving knowledge of Christ and start to love the word of God the way that we love it. If you stand together, we'll be closed in prayer, if you would please. Heavenly Father, we all believe the truth that your word is is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and you lead us in the right direction so that we can be and become what you want us to be. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would sharpen us, that you would knock off the rough edges, that you would mold us, Father, into what you want us to be. And I know that uh, we can resist that. I just pray that we would be the kind of people that along with the psalmist find out instead that we're going to be what Jesus wants us to be because he gives us life, a life that is not only abundant, but a life that is worth living. And we want to thank you that you cared so much to reach down and give us this wonderful word of yours. Uh, We know it is the power of, of you unto salvation. Thank you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming tonight.